everybody. It is June 24th, 2018, and this is episode 153 of Ad Percussion. I'm your host, Casey Cangelosi, and with me as usual is Ben Charles. Hi, everybody. And back co-hosting to help us out is Caleb Pickering. Hey. And Megan, back. You may have noticed our viewership has drastically been basically at zero for the last couple episodes, and that's because Megan Arns has been in Ghana for five weeks. Is that right? Five weeks. Yeah. Yeah, it's weird. You said episode 153, and it's like, whoa, where was it? You're like, whoa, you've been gone for six months. (laughs) Feels weird. I missed you guys. Yeah, we missed you too. Tell us just quickly about it a little bit. What did you do? What was it like? Sure, yeah. So we were in, I, I took some students with me from Mizzou, and we studied for three weeks at two different centers. One is in the Volta region of Ghana, and it's called the Dog Bay Cultural Institute, and I have talked about it in a segment here on the podcast before, um, but it's it's in this the southeast region of the country, very close to the coast, and um, the people that live there are the Ewe people, and so we were studying Ewe music, which is a hand stick type of drumming um, with barrel-shaped drums of all different sizes and dancing and singing. So we were there for 10 days studying that music. And then we moved uh, back more into the central part of the country near the capital, uh, just north of the capital to a city called Mediae. And there's a center there called Dagara Music Center, which I've also talked about on the podcast before and talked about Bernard Woma uh, recently in the the past few episodes before I left. And uh, so he founded that center. And, you know, and as I said, he had passed away, but the center is still up and running and his family is, is managing it. And there's still wonderful staff that's teaching there. So we, we studied for 10 days there. And that was music of Ga people, which is from that region, but also a huge focus on Dagara music, which isn't from that region, but is from the upper Northwest region. And that music um, is uh, the xylophones, the geals. So we spent a lot of time uh, studying that and also uh, singing and dancing as well. So we were there for about three weeks. We also took a few excursions uh, to Accra, the capital city, to Cape Coast, a coastal city. Um, We saw um, we went to a national park, Kanku National Park, and did a canopy walk, and visited um, the, the um, some of the castles on the coast. Um, this area was the central region for the Atlantic slave trade, and so a lot of those castles that were built during that time period with slave dungeons are still there. So extremely harrowing to see, and really important, you know. Um, so we went and, and toured one of those and, and learned about the history of what happened there. And yeah, so then the students left and I stayed for another two weeks. Uh, I traveled, I went north again to a city called Kumasi, the second biggest city in Ghana, and then east again to the Volta region. And I hung out with some monkeys, if anyone saw that on my Facebook page. I saw those pictures. You were holding a monkey in your palm of your hand. Yeah. So that was impressive. not a big thing in Ghana at all. The tourism uh, industry is underdeveloped. And so really awesome things like that, that probably in the States or somewhere that has a, a bigger, a booming tourism industry would be, you know, like lots of rules and guides and tons of people and 
things like that. And this was not, it was just totally in the wild. And I, we just walked out there with, uh, into the forest with, uh, with a guide and she was calling the monkeys. And after about 15 minutes, like you hear them rustling, there's a family that was there and we had brought a bunch of bananas with us and they just started like jumping on us. And she showed us how to, you know, how to, how to feed them the bananas. And it was, can I just say that I love that you fed the monkeys bananas. I think that's hilarious. Yeah, it was pretty fun. So there's that. And um, what else? I, I saw a waterfall. And anyway, then I, I traveled south again and studied for another another week at that first center that we were at at Dog Bay. So it was really awesome five weeks. It was packed. Um, and I learned so much. And Ghana is just such a different country than the United States. It's so different. And, you know, I mean, I could I could talk about this for the entire podcast, but I highly recommend it to anyone who is, uh, especially if you're interested in West African music, um, Ghana is very accessible. It's uh, um, English is, is the official language there and it's a safe country and it is just full of music. I mean, music is just a part of daily life there and you can find it everywhere. And there's so many different traditions that, that you can dig into and, and study and start to experience. So Highly recommend a trip to Ghana if you um, if you're interested. Now this is your second time or third time. This is my second time in Ghana. Second. I went 11 years ago as a student, and I always wanted to go back. So I've been trying to study more here in the states as much as I could, and and um, it was time to go back. And and same with my students. I've been teaching my students this music, and so some of them have been studying it for a few years now. And so I figured it's really time for them to 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 experience the culture full on. And you got some interviews too, that we're, we're going to turn into episodes, uh, probably, you know, three or four down the road, right? Yes. Yes. I interviewed Jerome Balsab from Dogra Music Center, one of the lead geo players there and, uh, Emmanuel Ogbelli, who's the director of Dog Bay. So cool. I can't wait to share those. It'll be great. Cool. Wow. Thanks so much, Megan. Yeah. Very uh, excited to, to see all that. So, you guys, let me let me introduce our guest today. He's an associate professor of music at Adams State University, and prior to that, he served as the principal percussionist with the Air Force Band of the Golden West. He's a member of the Music in the Mountains Festival Orchestra and is the principal percussionist with the San Juan Symphony. He's a part of the Doyle Kane Duo the Kokoro Trio, and the Animus Percussion Quartet. As a classical jazz and commercial music artist, he's toured in Africa, Asia, Australia, and Europe, performed with numerous Grammy award-winning artists, performed at the uh, PACIC Convention, the Percussive Art Society International Convention that uh, we, we all, all are probably well familiar with. So hello and welcome, you guys. This is James Doyle. How are you, James? I'm doing well. How are you all doing? Just fine. Thanks for thanks for joining us. And what's happening? Oh, I'm trying to get into a routine for the summer. Um, I don't know about you all, but it seems like every like the, it takes like a month after commencement to sort of find your bearing and and get into a groove of things. But yeah, just uh, I think this is the end of June. I I'll be spending uh, about almost the entirety of July uh, playing a music festival. So I'm trying to get all the things that I've put off all year done in uh, the rest of this month. That's pretty much it right now. So for James, uh, I'm sure you're not the first one to do this, but you're the first person I've seen do it, the 100 days of practice. 
And I'm reading this book right now, or I just finished it today, called Steal Like an Artist by Austin Kleon, I think, K-L-E-O-N. But he talks about the same thing about um, doing these keeping you honest posts or either on social media or logging yourself, doing like the ship's log where you log every day of I do something. Uh, Yeah, can you just talk about that? Because I find myself having a lot of issue in the summer with making sure I keep a routine. But once I get into one, I'm way more successful. Right. It was actually something that my students and I embarked on. You know, you're constantly trying to figure out what social media does and does not do for you. And so um, it obviously becomes a rabbit hole. It can be destructive uh, and really time consuming. But we decided in the fall to try to use it as sort of an accountability tool and see how it played out for everyone. Um, All of my students had different success or um I, I guess you could say everyone used it somewhat differently some students got it would find themselves getting a little distracted and trying to make a perfect video uh rather than um trying to just really keep an accountability and work it into their their goal setting so uh then this summer someone in my department calculated that we had literally 100 days from commencement until the start of the next semester so uh, for better or for worse decided to embark on it again. And um, so now I can I can tell you exactly how many days I have left until uh, the semester starts again. So yeah, that's, that's what I'm using it for. Instagram seems to be uh, the platform that works best for me to do that. And um, yeah, that's kind of, it, it was a project that we're, like I said, everyone's trying to figure out the value of, of social media and um, and that's where I am with that. I think it's so cool to see, I'm sure your students think the same thing. Like when I see, Casey practice or when I saw Brian Zader practice or Dean Gronemeyer practice, well, Tim Jones practice. Um, (laughs) um, I don't know. It's always nice to see your professor like getting better. Yeah. And I think in the summer, again, I don't, I can't speak for you all, but I know in the summer it's like that chance to sort of get caught up on like the fundamentals and look at new rep, look at new um, pedagogy uh, concepts, new, new texts and things like that. And so, yeah, it's, it's really kind of a, a valuable time to try to knock those things down. It's also, I would say though, um, I, I have to try not to fall into the trap of trying to make something uh, more interesting than it is, because as we all know that practicing sometimes is just not all that interesting to the masses. So I'm just getting past that and, and showing the reality of, of what your day maybe uh, was. And I mean, and try to can't, can't like, I guess, capture four hours or two hours, or even just a half an hour into like one minute or less is, is sort of silly. So uh, at this point, I just will decide, you know, I kind of ne- need to hear what this sounds like. I'm going to go ahead and record it. And um, and then I'll usually use a clip of something that I was recording myself. Um, just I'll, I'll use that clip as my little 100 days of practice post. So, yeah, sometimes like during the summer, you look and you have five hours plus, I mean, easily to practice. And it's like, you know, oh, all of a sudden I can spend an hour, an hour and a half on technique if I want to easily. And I can learn a marimba solo in a week because I actually have all this time to learn all these notes. And yeah, for me, like I said, it's just it's complete recalibration of what, you know, how to practice. Did anyone um, subscribe or or, uh, contribute to Todd Meehan's practice journal on Kickstarter? No, but I want that for my students for sure. Yeah, I just I just don't know when all that happened, and I just saw it briefly, and I was like, oh, I wonder what's going on with that. Can anyone 
talk about it? Yeah, I actually, I did. Um, I'm going to do an experiment this semester or maybe this year. We'll see how long it goes um, to see if using like an analog. So using a journal um, is more functional than using like an app or using your phone, this sort of goal set and, and that sort of thing. So um, there's an, there's an app that I just um, came across called Modacity and it's sort of a, um, a hard cut or a, a and it's an apt digital version of, of of a practice log, so to speak. So yeah, I went ahead and got involved with um, that Kickstarter, and you know the stuff he's doing is cool, and and um, and I know my students follow uh, what Todd does, and I follow what Todd does. It's very hip, so I thought yeah, it'd be a piece of cake to jump in. So. Um, yeah, as soon as that journal comes, I'm going to try to get a couple of my students doing that one and a couple of them doing this app, and, and we'll sort of see uh, which one works best. Cool. It's a good percussive notes article. <laughs> yeah, we'll see about that. But I know I, I'm going to sit down later this week with a, a psychologist here on campus, and we're going to kind of talk about how to do um, sort of a, an actual study because uh, oh, yeah. doing those correctly, I, I, I don't really have that experience, but hopefully she can help me figure that one out. So yeah, it'll be like uh, the analog squares off against, you know, an app and we'll see how mm -hmm. it does. It'd be really fun. We, we should have Todd back on you know, like literally a couple of years from now when he, you know, I don't know, like we can, we can see how far the journal has gone and if it's worked for people and yeah, when maybe people have, have looked at some numbers like you mentioned, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That would be really interesting. Very cool. Well, let's have a little break for James right now. I do have a sound for you guys today. This was this was kind of a difficult one. It is an instrument, and I don't know it or not, I think. So let me cue that up here. And sorry if you hear jazz music in the background. There's a, a jazz concert out on the out on the lawn right now. Nice. I hope you can hear this little motif of Yeah, I'm guess I'm guessing nobody nobody knows it, right? I have no idea. <laughs> it is a stringed instrument that really I'm and when you listen to a clear recording, maybe it didn't come through so well on my little speaker, but it, it just sounds like a open lid piano and you're smacking the strings with your hand. You know, you put the pedal down, you just go wham, 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 and you smack a bunch of the strings with like your whole whole palm, right? So, Man, By the way, Blue Man Group does that. They call it piano smasher. With the, oh, really? Yeah, I think they do it with like a bass drum out, yeah. So have you guys ever had to play a piece, and we did it recently, Caleb had to find a solution for the church bells in Mahler 2. Have you guys ever had to find solutions for church bells in, say, Berlioz or Wagner or Mahler? Ugh, it's not fun. Yeah. <laughs> it's so it's so hard to find solutions, yeah. I think. But, and, and this, this is really going to end up being just kind of a lesson in terminology, but this is what Wagner commissioned and had built to replace the church bells he called for in Parsifal. Oh. So it's this, it's this frame of piano strings 
hung and you hit him with a felt mallet. And he calls for the pitches C, G, A, and E, just like this. And that's the ostinato that you play over and over and over. And he wanted church bells. He couldn't get church bells. So let me just start reading for you. The, the, the terms that we're going to go over are grail bells, parsifal bells, parsifal chimes, and monsavat bells. So I don't know if you've probably heard some of those terms before. So yeah, this is the instrument that Wagner made to replace the church bells he calls for in his opera, Parsifal. He commissioned it from his friend Edward Steingraber. And today it's been recreated by the company, the descendants, Steingraber and Son, and the Handbook of Percussion Instruments by Carl... Uh, Pinecoffer and Franz Tangle. Have you guys ever seen oops, this book before? I don't know if you have this one. It's out of print. It's sort of uh, the second hardest to find after probably the Blades book. And I actually looked it up. Do you think the, the Blades book is hard to find? I, I It's expensive. The Blades uh, book is... Oh, okay. I think it's plentiful, but it's expensive. This one is also expensive and I think harder to find. It's uh, $90 on Amazon. They had two used copies when I checked today. But this book refers to these as grail bells. And that's what Wagner called them. He called them grail bells, as in the holy grail. So... This book describes them as four choirs of strings, C, G, A, and E, struck with a large felt padded hammer. Another another name for this instrument, and probably the more common one, is Parsifal chimes. And of course, in Tony Cerrone's terminology book, he calls them Parsifal chimes, and he does distinguish them from Parsifal bells, which is something that the Deegan Company made that are, are just a good replacement for uh, glockenspiel, yeah, or orchestral bells. So let's see, what else, what else, what else? And yet another name you hear for these is that Monsavat bell. So in the opera, in Parsifal, the, these bell sounds draw the knights to the ceremony of the grail, which is the holy grail, and this is set in the castle, in Grail Hall, which is on the mountain Monsavat. So that's the setting. And you'll often hear all those different terms uh, used, but it's all the same thing. So it's really interesting that this piano sound was something that Wagner went for and ended up being the thing he favored the most. He used these in conjunction with these giant metal pitch barrels he had created. And I have pictures for you guys. So the strings are inside the barrels? No, so they're two separate instruments. You have the barrels, and they're they're going to be struck in unison with the with the parsifal bells with the strings. So here's the here's the pitches. And for those of you listening, if you want to uh, you know look here, I've, I've got uh, pictures all overlay for you guys. And there's some really cool websites that help with this. Some good web pages are one called. Those are huge. Yeah, they're huge. It's ridiculous. And of course, they were housed in the opera house to stay there. I mean, you know, they ran these operas for a really long time. So that was the stage. That's where they stayed. When I first saw the picture, I had no idea. I thought, are they doing this in some giant distillery or something? Why are these <laughs> giant barrels in the background? There's an article, 
There's an article called Ringing the Changes in Parsifal, the Bells of Grail Hall. And you can find this on the Royal Opera House website, www.roh.org.uk, in their news section. So they have a really nice description with photos and a, a cool history of these, um, of these, these instruments. Another cool website I found was called... Monsovat, the Parsifal homepage, which is sort of like a dedicated wiki to Parsifal a little bit. It's just got a lot of information. And the entry is called The Bells of Monsovat. And it says a lot of the same things. And of course, the book covers some of the common substitutions. People will use bell plates along with some type of pitch, like like giant vibraphone, uh, metallophone thing. Or they'll use, uh, you know, a lot of synthesized or digital things. So, yeah, that is your sound for the day. Does anybody happen to know why Deegan called that those bells Parsifal bells? I, that's exactly. I was just looking for that online. I just googled it, and I can't. I can't find anything. I I couldn't find it either. And I thought Ben, if anyone would know, it would be you because you did that segment on the Deegan Company and some of those instruments. And I, I, I know it says in one description that they're just meant to be loud. So I wonder if they took the name after after just like, man, Wagner is really loud. It's probably hard to hear Glock and Wagner. Yeah, I have no idea. That's what I wondered, but speculating. I will say you said if there's anyone that knows it'll be me. Well, if there's anyone that really knows it'll be Bill Mersh who we'll have on in a couple okay, weeks and we'll we can ask. ask. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll ask him for sure. But um, yeah, I even looked up the instrumentation. There's no Glock. There's no orchestra bells. There's just these four giant, giant church bells that you're supposed to have. And if you want to hear it in context, it is. I've got some of that too. So here are the church bells, or excuse me, the Parsifal bells in context of the whole thing. Uh, Yeah, what do you got, Caleb? So this is semi-related, but they announced today, actually, uh, the Bayreuth Theater is digitizing all of Wagner's uh, archive. So his, um, let's see, sorry. So basically all his programs, all the letters from Cosma, all of his notebooks, all of his original scores, uh, the photos of him he's taken. Uh, so it's about to be. Not sure when it's finished, but they're starting now and they'll be released soon. So it's kind of cool. You can see all of the original Wagner manuscripts and photos and whatnot. It's really That's cool. really cool. That's awesome. Uh, w- one other little thing I'll add from the Royal uh, Opera House article that I mentioned. They say, what were the actual sounds Wagner had in mind? Bells at the low pitch he required were hardly conventional orchestral instruments for good reason, given the lowest pitch bell would weigh more than 26 tons and have a diameter around eight meters. Tubular bells or bell plates or popular orchestral bell substitutions wouldn't cut it. Wagner needed something otherworldly, but he also needed something that would fit in a orchestra pit so of course he commissioned that thing of strings and then um, yeah the giant barrels came later so uh do we know where these are now like how many of these exist and where they are i don't know i didn't find that 
I didn't. The, the the instrument itself, the the strings, the one we listened to was recreated by this um, uh, th- this company that I mentioned, String Grabber and Son. But the original one, I'm not sure about. I'm not sure if we still have it or if we have the barrels or or what. I didn't find that. If anyone knows, please write in to us. I would love to love to tell the answer on a later episode. Or if they're being sold on eBay, like <laughs> right, like gongs. the like the Puccini gongs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, how about another question for James? Anybody? Yeah. So when I'm less familiar with one of our guests, I often poke around on their websites, and I was on James's website, and I found something that I wanted to ask about. And I just wanted to read a little bit of what James wrote in his uh, blog entry, which is titled, What Does Your Programming Say About Your Ethos? And this is from February 4th. And he says, this past Friday in studio class, we discussed what it means to perform someone's work who's a known anti-feminist. This led to discussions about performing works by known racists, homophobes, etc. My students engaged in a beautiful and insightful discussion, professional thoughtful, well-informed. We discussed the often uttered statement, good music is good music regardless of race or gender. Can we add value to an already valuable experience? What does it mean to champion someone's music and how powerful of a role do we play when programming? And then the next thing he says is, there's much more to write on these topics and I intend to, but this is from February and James hasn't written anything else about it. (laughs) (laughs) So James, I was wondering if you could elaborate on your thoughts, if you've had any, you know, further developments on this since February. Wow. That's definitely uh, also on the summer to-do list that is is pretty far down there at this moment. But, you know, that's... I think in the the climate we live in right now, where it's it, it's become difficult to have conversations with folks when you don't agree on on the same, um, like when your values are maybe different. And what I'm actually looking for right now is I, is I would love to be able to continue that blog post um, with someone that that takes the other side of where I stand on this right now. And so I think I'm sort of waiting for that person to materialize, or maybe I just need to figure out who to reach out to. But it is a, um, you, you probably know what I'm talking about there with, um, you know, a recent um, high incident. profile yeah. <laughs> incident. Correct. Yeah. And so it, it really made for a nice conversation with my students as uh, someone was playing um, a work by that composer in, in studio class that day. And so it led to, like I said, a, like a really wonderful conversation. And even though um, this, the students in the studio class definitely had um, different perspectives, we were able to have a very meaningful conversation out of it. And so, yeah, I, I feel like I'd kind of like to have that debate with someone and, and put it in writing and, and go from there. Well, it's think- pretty easy to play, to play devil's advocate, at least, you know, if they wanted to say, I guess the common argument is, well, good music is good music. You shouldn't care who it's written by. You just judge it by, by uh, you know, the, the value of what it is, and 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 don't even think about the the name or who it's by. What would you What would you say to that? Well, for for me, I think you spend so much time, and um, and certainly as a student, you have a limited amount of time uh, to, to select repertoire with your with your teacher, and. Um, I feel like particularly in this day and age, you can find out so much about a composer. You can, it's so much easier to commission a composer. It's so much easier to um, hear the works played um, on YouTube and various other resources. So 
to me, I feel like the the selection process of repertoire should maybe go a little bit deeper. And then there's, you know, if you're going to put in 80 to hundred hours or, or more sometimes on, on rep, why not kind of question the, the, the value and, and the values of, of the music that you're playing and, um, or not, I, I think at the end of the day, like if my, if I have a student who uh, has a really strong uh, opinion about playing a, a piece, I just want to know why. And if they can articulate why, that's it's probably going to be totally cool with me. Um, it's just trying to get beyond the well. It's because it's cool. I mean, we all love playing music because it's just cool, or if it, it feels great to play. But I think um, just digging a, to to that next level, kind of like peeling the onion back, so to speak, and, and get a little bit further into understanding um, the the piece, um, a, a piece of music. Does it have you know all these things that speak to you? Uh, but then also. Um, is there like an opportunity to sort of, um, I use the term force multiply. It's maybe left over from my air force days, but it's like, if you're going to put in a lot of effort on something, uh, what else can you do with it besides playing that one and done recital? Can you maybe make a, a video uh, or record it? It hasn't been done before. And so sometimes that's going to require you to find a, a composer who is less known. Um, or can you, um, tie it into some social justice movement or, or, or none of the above. So I think it's just worth asking yourself the question. <laughs> I think I really like that you, you use the term ethos with this. And we talked about this pretty extensively with, I looked it up, Elizabeth Blair on episode 72. And we mentioned this um, female composers database. But I think that like one thing that you've kind of indirectly said here is it's not bad to play a concert all by white men or anything like that. And good music is good music, regardless of, you know, the gender or race or anything like that of who wrote it. But I think especially when you're in an educational field or just generally a cultural field, it's important to represent a wide array of people. And I think especially in an educational field, if you have female composition students and every composition that your percussion ensemble performs is by a male, I think it's kind of a turnoff and a missed opportunity to show that there, you know, there can be role models, so to speak, of any type. And I think that uh, you know, a black student or a female student or a gay student that can see a composer that's quote unquote like them. Um, I, I think that's a, a powerful thing for a young person. And I don't think it's sort of tokenization just for the t sake of tokenization, if it's done for the correct reasons. Um, I think it would be weird to have a checklist that every single concert you have to work, have a work by a black composer, female composer, gay composer, you know, every minority you can think of. But I don't think it's a I don't think it's a bad thing to, to consider these things when choosing your programming. And then I guess the flip side is that if there is someone, and I, I think we all know who this is referring to, if there is someone that has stirred controversy, um, especially a living person, it's uh, you have to consider that that person is actually financially benefiting off of your performing their music. If Beethoven hmm. was discovered to be a serial murderer, I think that we would probably still play Beethoven because he's dead and his family isn't benefiting from it anymore. Um, but I don't know. I could be wrong on that too. <laughs> but yeah, I think it's, it's an interesting discussion and it, it goes beyond the quality of music or anything like that. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, it's just it's worth having a discussion. I know when I'm programming now, it it I don't have a checklist per se, but it is something that I just look at and I think, okay, um, is there, is there maybe something else I could do here? And sometimes the answer is no, no, it's fine. I'm just going to go ahead and program uh, what I have in mind. But 
um, I think, again, just being in an educational setting, it's really, I think, valuable to have the discussion with students and kind of um, bring that up and um, and let them make their own decisions after having some more information in front of them. There's a really interesting, uh, it was in the UK, it was probably a month to two months ago. I just kind of want to know what y'all think about this. There's a pretty big composition contest that basically uh, it's three rounds but if you are a woman or a person of color, you're automatically advanced to round two. And I've heard, I've talked to a lot of people and there's a lot of mixed feelings, but uh, I don't know why I really think about it. That's hard. Yeah. If, if I could, if I could add to this, I, I actually know of a composer that I think it was the Detroit Symphony had something, some sort of competition for black composers. And he got his piece like read and a recording of it from the Detroit Symphony, I think under Leonard Slatkin. Um, and it was obviously a huge opportunity for him. But he kind of said like, yeah, I, I kind of only had this opportunity because I'm black. So, yeah, yeah. the only person I've heard argue this really well, because I feel like it's it's just hard to articulate. It's like, great, we agree. We got to get more d diverse composers out there and we got to get more of these pieces played. And, you know, I, I think we all are in agreement, but when, you, when you're making the argument with the other side and they said, when, when I was playing Devil's Advocate just a few minutes ago, just saying like, well, good music's just good music. You know, it should just be about, about the music itself. And if they're good, they'll surface, you know, well, yeah, and let the and music it, talk, and do this, the talking. In this composition that, uh, competition that Caleb's referencing. I mean, I just think about like a, a performance competition, like Great Plains, if they automatically advanced all female and minority performers, like, you know, it doesn't matter because when they get to the second round, if they're going to get cut, they're going to get cut. If they're not, they're not. So, um, right, right, right. Yeah, th that seemed a little weird to me, but you know, my, my colleague who I've talked about on the podcast before, you guys remember forever ago, I talked about an, the artist here at JMU who has, he has his art. It's going to go to the moon. Mark Rooker. Oh, yeah. We, yeah. Yeah. Really, really interesting project. But uh, it, we co-taught that class arts 100 and this topic came up and students are all fired up about it. We're fired up about it. And it's, it's just, he, he articulated it so well, and I, I wish I could, I remembered it. I wish I recorded it. It's like, yes, yes, that, those are the words I can never find. <laughs> it was so, so good. Of course, he's just, he's just very wise. But um, it, it, was, it was interesting in that class to, to talk to everyone about it. And there's, of course, the young white males in the class. And, man, they were, they were just kind of distraught, like, you know, to think, no, like, I'm not going to be open to the same competitions as other people and because you know they're they're freshmen in college they're terrified of the real world they've got to join the real world as well they know they're they have to compete for jobs just as hard as everyone else and and you know they're <laughs> just as scared as any young person so it's uh i don't know it's interesting yeah i don't have i don't have his words but uh i i think it also depends on the mission of the competition or of the presenting organization or the university or what, whatever it is. And I think, you know, Ben, you're talking about um, this, this composer thinking, oh, I only want this because I'm black. I think that that same, like think, spending time thinking of that, and you know, this is not to be respectful of that com particular composer, but I think if we spend time thinking about that and, and, and arguing about that and worrying about that, we're taking a step backwards because 
the truth is that, you know, these underrepresented groups, some of these underrepresented groups have been discriminated against in the past for a long time. And there's a history um, that need that cannot be erased and it cannot be corrected. And for a while now, we're going to have to to overcompensate <laughs> to to try to make things equal. You know, we were talking um, many episodes ago about um, gender equality and and that date that 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 men and women will be actually you know on an equal be equal. Right, I remember that. And it's so far away. And I think having a tangible date like that, it's like. It, it really makes the uh, it, it puts it on the agenda. Like let's yeah. do this, and I think you know if that competition, if their goal is to get more works put out there uh, of you know underrepresented composers, and they they should state that in their mission, and like maybe they maybe they should say no white composers are allowed or something. I don't mean I don't even know, but but if they put that in their mission statement, and they probably did. Um, look at it that way. I think it's different. You know, like have you guys ever heard of people saying like, "Oh, well, why is there, um, why is be, why is there BET, why is there black entertainment television and not white?" That is ridiculous. Right. <laughs> you know, there's plenty of white TV, and so I don't know. I that's kind of my thought on it. No, yeah, that's Megan, really that's really well said. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I James. Oh, that's okay. I think, Megan, you touched on it. You, you know, it's been like millennia that we really don't know what music's been left behind because it's been so dominated by white men. And, you know, there's a anti-racism author, Tim Weiss. He's, he's a white uh, American author from, um, I think, Tennessee and, and lived in New Orleans for a while. But there's a quote that I just came across in one of his books. Um, we aren't to blame for history, either its horrors or the legacy it's left us but we are responsible for how we bear that legacy and what we make of it in the present. So I think that quote is, I think kind of important is that we just kind of recognize and, and are aware of history and then think about, um, you know, what, what role can we play? And for um, some people that may just be an awareness, some people, it may be just a discussion. Other people, it might be that that becomes their whole life work, uh, life work to become kind of a social activist in music. So, um, and, I think, especially with students, hopefully we can inspire them to at least have um, have these thoughts in their minds. And I know for me, it wasn't something that had crossed my mind. And um, like Ben, you referenced the blog post from February. Uh, yeah, I was just I was having a conversation with one of my students, and uh, she had an interest in this area and, and sort of social justice. And I started thinking, I wonder if I could just program an entire uh, concert of women uh, composers. And it, it was a little more difficult to find pieces that, that would work than I thought. Um, it turned out to be a blast really digging around people's websites and, and checking out composers I've never heard of uh, because so much is self-published. Um, and that's kind of where you, I think Casey, you mentioned earlier, I started putting together a database and that database is really for me. And then thought, well, gosh, maybe I can just share it out to some others. So um, it, I don't really intend for anything to be exclusive, um, just to, as a resource for others after, you know, when you, when you go digging for something uh, you want to kind of keep track of, of where you were. And that's what that, that database is. Thank you. Well, you, well I know if you guys saw on Facebook, our, our friend and, and Megan's friend, really Amy Garapik posted, Hey, who's got a, she's got some uh, female percussion composer names and man, there's just the amount of responses were really good. There was just a huge list. 
so it seems like people are, you know, they, they do care about it. James, you, you mentioned earlier, you know, having a discussion with your students is, um, you know, okay, you think this piece is good. Why? Let's, let's get beyond just like, Oh, cause it's cool. Well, well, let's, let's dig, dig a little more into it. And it reminded me of a kind of continuous conversation I had with a, an old colleague of mine who is an opera director and his reasoning was always a social or historical context. And my reasoning was always some like pure musical reason. Oh, it's so clever the way the, whatever the chord spellings invert and end up all uh, respelling each other or some nerdy thing. And he says, Oh no, it's so cool because when Mozart wrote this, he was visiting this place and he had just met this person. And it's all about the context. And, you know, of course we both think, Oh man, you're a nerd. You should think more like I do. And we both think that about each other, but it's like so interesting. It's such a great conversation. Like what, what makes it good? Is it the, the like pure, the pure musical side or is it the context that it belongs in? And that makes me think of what Megan just said about this competition is, well, it's about the goal of the competition. And maybe they should just say like, Hey, no, this isn't, <laughs> this could be more about the context. Like we're much more interested in the context that this is coming from and its place. Just like my, my friend JJ is, that, that's what he's interested in. That's, where he finds music most interesting. I hope that made sense. It makes sense. Sure. Yeah. How about uh, Caleb? You feel like doing a topic? Yeah, I got a little bit about environments. By the way, you think you can crank up that jazz in the background? Pretty, I can. I can mute myself. It's swinging pretty hard. It's uh, pretty good. <laughs> you know what? So, so this ensemble, it just poured rain. And I saw, you know, my office windows, I saw the poor drummer like dragging his cymbals oh, inside no. and everyone was dragging the drums inside. I just grabbed a towel, like went out there. I don't know the guy at all. I grabbed it. I just like Aww. can't stand. To, you just can't stand to see that. Yeah, it's horrible. You know? So I was like wiped off the cymbals. Just like, yeah, anyway. OK, fine. I'll mute my mic. So anyways, I've been reading this book. It's a it's a tabletop book. I mean, uh, I think it's about. 140 pages, but it's a half size book. So really it's 70 and half of them are pictures. So really <laughs> 35. It's my kind of book. And a lot of the font is smaller or sorry, bigger. So really it's like an hour and a half read. You get through it pretty quick. Uh, but it's by a, I guess he is a artist slash editor slash journalist. His name's Austin Cleon. It's called Steal Like an Artist. But he has something in here James alluded to at the beginning, talking about uh, his analog workspace versus his digital. So his office is set up with one side is his computer, his typing station, his music. And then on the other side is his hard copy desk, all of his paper, his pens, his art supplies, where he works. And he bounces between the two. And I've been just thinking about how my office, where I am right now, helps me get stuff done and I always feel less productive than when I'm say at school or in the studio. So I started looking it up and I found this woman, her name is Juliet Zhu. And she wrote a great article called how the environment impacts creative thinking. And I read through it and it was some of the coolest things I think I've read. So basically uh, Zhu is professor of marketing at Chang Kong graduate school of business, which is the leading business school in China. And her and one of her colleagues were recently named China Social Responsibilities, which I think is um, just a 
collection of people. They named her Persons of the Year, and she is the China Philanthropist of the Year for 2015 or 16. I didn't write it down. But her and her team did this really cool research where they researched productivity and focus in regards to people's creative process, which includes people from business to artists, writers, anyone that has to work like in a space, in a physical space. So it's a little bit of everybody. So their thesis was to prove that your work environment is a major impacting variable for your work and how it gets done. So what they did is they went through all these experiments, and I'll walk through them, but they basically uh, broke it down into five environmental categories, which are sound, color, temperature, lighting, and physical space. So just starting with sound, and this one is, I think we've all probably dealt with this, Uh, They found noise isn't bad, and it actually increases your productivity and creativity. Uh, They found that moderate levels of noise, which are around 70 to 80 decibels, is prime for productivity, which for us is, um, say, a casual conversation or if your window's open and you have some casual just uh, road city traffic going by, no horns or anything, just the sound of cars on the street, that's kind of in that range. Or like a coffee shop, or would that be too loud? No, that's, that's kind of that, too. That's kind of on the high end, but that's the same same thing. Cool. Um, and actually, they gave them, they took a bunch of control, they had a control group and a bunch of other groups of people, and they did several experiments, and they found that this 70 to 80 decibels increased productivity by 25%. So uh, it's really cool that the testing grounds, they gave them these creative tasks to accomplish, and it was basically they were giving them three words or four words, and they would have to give words quickly that fit into those categories. So, for example, one of them was they gave them the words 16, heart, and chocolate. And the majority answer to add a word was sweet. So you had sweet heart, sweet chocolate, sweet 16, stuff like that. So, again, the people that had that coffee shop level of volume were 25% more effective. And it works really uh, similarly to if you listen to last week, I talked about Tim Galway a little bit, his inner game books. And he has this idea of self one and self two, self one being your kind of negative inner monologue. And so having that extra outside noise just kind of frees your mind a little bit. So it gives that inner monologue something to listen to and something to do and distract. So your more creative focused side can kind of come through and think outside the box. So they went on, one of her team members actually created this app. It's a website as well. It's called Coffivity, uh, C-O-F-F-I-T-I-V-I-T-Y. Like coffee. Yeah, Um, like coffee and productivity. Not like coffin. Yeah, not like coffin. (laughs) Uh, But it simulates all these different sounds, and you can download it to computer, phone, whatever. Uh, That's what they found for sound. For color, I thought this was really interesting Uh, They based it off another psychologist or a psychologist who is Dr. Jamie Madigan, who is the author of a really pretty hip book called Mind Games, uh, which is research that there's a glaring discrepancy in that some people find red and blue colors in the background help to focus, but only in certain situations. So they did all these tests and they found out if you're doing detail-oriented things that need accuracy, so business, numbers, anything with uh, less creativity, so not so much composition, but maybe music theory homework. If you have a red background, either on your computer or just red is in your vision, your line of sight and your peripherals, 
again, they were, sorry, they were 30% more successful than those that did not have it, or sorry, that had blue in their background. And likewise, those that were doing creative things, such as uh, drawing, uh, puzzles, things where it's not so analytical, it's more free. I guess puzzles doesn't fit in. That's a bad example. But uh, if you had blue in the background, they found that equally made them more uh, product, uh, productive. Uh, temperature was really interesting. I don't really think about this because I always just kind of crank it one way or the other. So most everyone engages in two types of mental processing. One is cognitive, where you take in information systematically in a sequence and you process the information as it comes and as as it comes by. At the end, you can make a decision. And the second type is effective processing, which is where you don't process it all at once or sorry, systematically, you just look at the whole picture as a thing and you kind of go with your gut. So it's kind of like systematic thinking versus your gut intuition. So this Juliet Zhu, she found that higher temperatures activate your effects of processing because heat depletes our mental and physical resources and causes us to make decisions quickly. So if you think about, say, performance arousal, we talked about that a little bit last time. If you're on stage and you have heat of lights, uh, dress clothes, especially for men, like a collar shirt is pretty restricting sometimes. Uh, it increases the rush of adrenaline, which makes you warmer, which makes your gut instincts kick in a little more. So if you have really good musical instincts, you'll make a good decision. And that's why we see a lot of young performers fail uh, sometimes for their first or second performance. Maybe they get too nervous. They go into this gut instinct because they're getting hot and they get hotter and hotter. And then they go with their intuition and maybe they don't have the education yet or the uh, experience yet for their gut instinct to make the correct call. So I thought that was really cool. So they found out uh, through another example that if you are doing analytical stuff, again, like math, that side, cooler room is far more effective. And again, if you're doing creative stuff, a warmer room is far more effective. So talking about warmer, this is like high 70s. And if you're talking about cooler, you're talking about high 60s. Um, for lighting, they actually, this was the biggest part of the research that actually made them blow up a little bit, was GE, uh, General Electric, used this research when they started developing their newer light bulb models in the past two years. Uh, just because it was so prolific, I guess, what they found out. So they had two groups, and each group was giving two print ads of a fake brand of camera, and they didn't tell them what the ad was for. So one ad was a picture of, say, a camera, uh, a lens, a remote, a camera case. And so it's very obviously a camera. It's not very creative. And then the other ad was more abstract. It had a camera in it, but there was a hotel bed, car keys, and a globe. So it was kind of this travel theme, but it was for a camera. So it's not directly like a pure Canon focus. So Zoo found that with a 100% success rate, people in a dimly lit room were able to decipher that both ads were for a camera versus when they were in a more bright lit room, there was a 50% rate. So there's quite wow. many people figure it out. Mm. And they call this disinhibition. So the option of inhibition. So this is, um, sorry, the logic's called disinhibition, 
which is where people in bright rooms associate the light with control and behavior. Like if you're in an office or in a doctor's office, there's this subconscious feeling that you have to behave and you have to think more analytically. Hmm. Whereas dark room, like a relaxation, conversation, creative thinking, like a bar, a coffee shop, or a lounge, it gets you more um, creatively focused. So the people in the dim room were able to decipher that, yeah, this is a camera ad. And there's lots of apps that help with this, like a Flux, if anyone has that. If you have a Mac, there's a blue light filter you can turn on, uh, which takes out some of those uh, higher, brighter lights and makes it a little bit easier on your eyes and makes you a little more productive. Um, The physical space, the last part, is kind of a feng shui concept, which is she's uh, Chinese, so this fits out, where rounded edges and smoothness bring harmony, bring complication. Casey always brings up poison arrows. I don't think he knows anything else about feng shui. But that's all I know. And, okay. and actually, that's Laurel. Well, that's something Laurel told me. So, okay. okay. So I don't know anything. <laughs> I feel really bad now. <laughs> no, that's all right. It's so, okay. In Zoo's research, she did a seating arrangement test where she had two styles of tables around in this kind of abstract L-shaped table. And they gave them a fictitious product and told them that Consumer approval ratings was about 80% from all age demographics, which is ludicrous. A five-year-old and a 75-year-old and a 35-year-old are probably not going to agree that specifically that something is what they're going to endorse. So when at the roundtable, they were far more likely to believe that these facts are true and conform to the, we'll just say, the fake news of what it is. Um, but Zoo theorizes this is, again, due to the gut instinct that kicks in, and they select what seems to be the best option based off perceived information, be it real or not. So when they're in the L-shaped table, people worked as contrarians, so they told this group that the product, which was 80% before, they told them, no, 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 this product has an abysmal 20% from everybody of success, so it's a total failed product. So the people sitting at the L-shape actually favored this product more, this failing one, um, because they're at this L-shaped table with very high results. It's really strange. So they're going contrary to the, the, the toll mm-hmm. belief. So when you're in these kind of poison arrow tables, as it will be like a standard desk, uh, you tend to be more contrarian and more, uh, more likely to go against the current. Right. And, and just for everyone listening, it's like an awkward corner. You know, you walk, you don't want to walk in your front door and there's like a table corner right in front of you. It's like, no, you want there to be a flow and like where you walk and the table is over here, not in your pathway. So it'd be a poison arrow if the, if the corner is like in your way, basically. So Casey does know. He knows. <laughs> I, that was word for word what Laurel told me. <laughs> Um, but in the same test, they were given candies and told to do these puzzles. And they basically, they put a bunch of junk on one table and took all the junk off another table. And they found out the people that were on these junky cluttered tables. So if your desk is like a total mess, like mine is, and I have a feeling most of ours are, the people given M&M candies ate over two times as much candy and gave up twice as fast, <laughs> gave up fast than those that had a clear working space. So what does that mean, though? That's great, but what does that mean? So basically, I guess if that that part was just kind of tagged on. It's kind of weird that it's there. I guess, uh, yeah, if you don't want, if you're watching your weight, clean your desk. 
the conclusion boils down to if you're doing something detail oriented where you need to have specific answers that are basically right or wrong, you need a moderate amount of background noise, that 80 decibels, red tint in the background, a little bit cooler, much brighter lights, and a standard angular desk that's more straight ahead. If you're doing something creative like most of us, you still want background noise, but you'll favor blue, you'll favor slightly warmer, a little bit dimmer, and if you can find a round working space. And I kind of got a little more curious. I jumped down the rabbit hole, so I looked up Google, what Google headquarters does, uh, does in their new San Francisco office that opened like a year ago. I'm sure it's all. So yeah. they have fake background noise that's played through their speakers. So even though if everyone in the building or the, se the section is just typing, no one's talking, there's still this slight hum of conversation that's played, the synthetic background noise. And they went as far as to patent environmental background noise. So Jeez. they also use a lot of colors to accent, but all the executive offices and meeting rooms are blue chairs, blue tables, blue carpets with light blue walls where you're having to do these creative thinkings. And the new, uh, the new office, again, they keep it cool. And all the lighting is natural and kept dim. And if you've seen a picture of Google headquarters, um, all the furniture outside of countertops, like at a kitchen or a bar, are all rounded. There are no standard angled desks. So I thought that was really interesting. So now I need to go out and buy a round desk and paint my walls blue. But, I was uh, just going to say, I'm surprised that you know you don't have visual representation of all of this stuff already. There's a big red drum set over here. That's probably why I'm not getting anything done. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, that's so cool, Kayla. That is cool. So, oh man, oh, like, are you going to apply some of these things? Do you think that I don't know? Like, do you guys ever find like, yeah, my environment really matters as to whether I get get work done? I feel like the tidiness for me does. Like, I, I feel like it's one of those things. If I want to go out and conquer the world, first I need to like clean my table off. Oh man, yeah. What, so, what do you got, Ben? It's funny to me that like people do research on this sort of thing because, of course, every single aspect of your life is going to play into how you work. Uh, for example, if you didn't have a car and you had to walk 15 miles every single day to practice, most of us probably wouldn't practice. Now, there's an extreme example, obviously. But with my students, I find that like one of the biggest things is sleep schedule. Like The ones that are on a good sleep schedule are generally the better practicers. And also, like just general... Uh, general health and diet things. And like I have, uh, I've had students that just struggle so much to eat reasonably healthy food to the point that they just can't concentrate. And the, the one person that really, I think took us to the extreme that we can sort of look at and study is Bruce Lee. And if you ever like look at Bruce Lee, like, uh, everything he did, especially his diet was extraordinarily controlled. And that's why he was such a successful successful martial artist but yeah if you ever want to hear about how diet can affect everything check out bruce lee but then you can you get steven seagal whose diets doesn't look very <laughs> there's also you know, like the like the billy joel 80s like cocaine diet but, you know obviously successful in his own right also <laughs> wow very cool Shoot, I had something. <laughs> the Steven Seagal thing totally 
I feel like I hate the mess, but I can't get away from it. And it actually helps. Like uh, some advice I would pass on. We have the Boston Brass here. And someone asked, one of the students asked, what do you, um, no, sorry, the the horn player. I'm sorry, I forget his name. But he said when he was a kid, he had trouble practicing. He had just discipline problem practicing. And his teacher said, okay, first thing you need to do when you go home from school every day and you've got your horn, just put your horn case down, open the case, put your horn on the bed just so that the horn is there. It's that much easier to get to. And he said that little kernel of help really, really helped so much for him to start practicing. So I, I wonder if that's why the messiness, I know for me, like my office is really messy and there's, I hate that there's not a clean surface that like stresses me out, but everything is right there and accessible and it's so easy and it reminds you what you have to do and what you have on tap. And, you know, they, they say that messy people, they're actually, uh, they have a very detailed, specific filing system that only works for them. So, um, you know, yeah, you do hear with me, I, I call these enablers with my students, and they are positive enablers and negative enablers. Some things make it easier for you to practice, like leaving your heart on your bed, and other things like having a mess that your music is all underneath make it more difficult. So, and I'm for myself too, I've you know, I just have to make it as easy as possible to practice. Yeah, for sure. And uh, Rob Knopper talks about that too. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I feel like it's not something I could, anytime I try to have a practice journal or like try to trick myself, like I could never be one of those people that has their clock set 10 minutes fast. You know, some people do that. They go, Oh, I'm just going to set all the clocks in my house 10 minutes fast. Then I'll always be on time. It's like, dude, that doesn't work. That would never, I can't trick, I can't trick myself into doing it. It's just like, it's just natural. There's, that makes me, I mean, we've come round table back to the hundred days of practice thing, but I feel like I haven't ever done it, but I feel like that would work for me because I know people are just counting the, uh, people are just counting the days. It's just like, Oh, okay. He did day one through three and he should be on 60 and we haven't heard from him. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that would just keep it if there's some sort of accountability. Yeah. Small. Right. Right. Well, I, I would love to, we're about out of time, I would love to end with one more thing for James. Does anybody have something for James? I have something for James. Sure. James, yeah, can you it. tell us, we, we had Valerie Naranjal on a while back, and I think she is one of the, just the most fascinating percussionists in every single way of all time. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, this is someone that studied marimba with Gordon Stout and obviously plays hand drums and has studied African geel and seems to have like the Michael Burrett level of energy. And I know she's worked with your students at ASU. Could you tell us about just the, the Valerie Naranjo experience? Yeah, you bet. I feel really lucky. Um, when I moved to this town, it's, it's very geographically isolated. And uh, soon after moving here, I learned, oh, there's this, uh, this percussionist that plays on the Saturday Night Live band um, that, that grew up here. And I'm thinking, no, that's the drummer. And he grew up in um, in Missouri, I think. So I'm pretty yeah. sure that you don't know what you're talking about. So then um, I didn't, I honestly never really noticed, um, embarrassingly, um, not watching enough Saturday Night Live, I guess, but that Valerie was in the, in the background there. So I met her the first time and yeah, Ben, I had the same uh, reaction that you just did. The more I, the more I learned about her, I was like, my 
goodness, she's just like a force of nature. So we've been lucky that she grew up here. Her family's here. Um, she and her partner, Barry, they like to ski. Uh, they're big skiers. And so, and I, I want to say too, they spend a lot of time and maybe even have a place down in Taos, New Mexico, which is about an hour and 15 hour and 20 minutes from me. And so, um, yeah, she comes out here. It's been really cool. Um, Jill, she gave us one. So we have one in our inventory and, you know, all of her transcriptions were sort of, um, all, all of her Jill transcriptions have been wonderful for, um, both myself, but also my students, especially students who are, that come with a lot of drum set background. Um, those tunes work really great for them and, um, they love them. And, uh, you know, there's some like pawn logos pretty easy, but then some of these things are beasts and, uh, I've had some students really dig into it and she's been really generous with her time, uh, when she comes to, to work on those with my students. Uh, also with us having a Jill now, um, two things, one, when she's here to perform, she doesn't have to, to haul an instrument, but also now my students get that opportunity to just play some Jill and, uh, yeah, a lot of movement that's been cool too, where she ties in a lot, you know, she's a great singer. Uh, I want to say that her um, that she maybe even has a dual degree in uh, percussion and voice. So right. great singer, that, yeah. and of course all the movement. Yeah, she's uh, yeah, like and like you said, her energy level is immense. I remember the first time she was here, um, she was like, "Hey, can we start rehearsing at about 10 p.m.?" That's when, you know, I can get into town and when, when I'm free of family obligations. And so we got started around 11, around one in the morning. My students are kind of losing some focus. And she was like, come on, come on. You, this is how it is in New York City. You finish playing your show. And then, you know, if you're doing a side project, this, the only time you can rehearse is at two in the morning. So step up your energy. And it was just like a really it's, it's really kind of cool for students that are um, on a couple levels. One that are um, in the middle of Colorado to sort of get um, that like her life experience coming in from New York city and, um, also knowing that she came from here, I think is also pretty, a pretty cool thing as well. So yeah, we've learned a lot, um, continue to learn a lot from her. I know that, um, Megan just got back from Ghana and I'm sure that y'all will be talking about that in the, in the next episode. And, um, it's just that, that culture, that drumming and that, that musical culture, um, I wasn't super familiar with, um, you know, I've, I've had, have had Mike Fricelli out here before who has done a lot of that, um, and, and spent a lot of time in Ghana, but yeah, Valerie is like, like you said, it's just like a force of nature. She's a, a wonderful human being and a, and a great musician. So James, I have, I have a question. Does Angela Winter teaches at your school, right? Okay. Yeah. She like does. Our, yeah. Uh, our trumpet professor and I think our trombone professor, like playing a brass quintet with her and they were like, they were out there, I think like last year. Uh, yeah, I think I missed it, but, um, yeah, she's cool as heck. Have, has she played at your school? No. And I, like, I played in UNT wind symphony with her, but like, I, we like barely understand, like she wouldn't know who I am, but yeah, okay. she seems to be doing yeah, great things a, out there. Yeah. She's a great colleague. She's, uh, one of my favorites that we've had. So, so guys, check this out. This is what Angela did. Like, from what I understand, at least you can correct me if I'm wrong at uh, Adam State they they had like a small marching band that I guess it wasn't super successful and she shut the marching band down and created a chamber music program oh that's so cool that's what they needed to do at Concord you they definitely need don't need to do that at JMU <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah God. yeah that's but cool. yeah it's like if it's not worth it like just have like a good quality like brass quintet sort of experience yeah James don't y'all rotate for halftime shows like still band brazilian 
like choir, something like that? Yeah. So when we killed the marching band and, and it was Angela, like you said, that she was the one that brought that. We had a new president. So everything would kind of timed out. Angela got here, had her first year at this marching band was like, this is awful. You know, certainly we're a school of under 3000 students and about 40 percent of them are student athletes. And so getting uh, non-majors involved in music is difficult, not not because they don't want to, but because they just aren't there aren't enough students and there aren't that many here. So, um, yeah, so we were able to sort of, we called it a strategic pivot, which was kind of our, our, um, selling point where we went to this new president and said, Hey, we could actually, instead of just doing like these five home football games, we could, uh, put together with that same amount of money and no budget change and the same amount of scholarship stipend money or whatever, we can put together five or six chamber music groups that would be more valuable um, educationally. And then we can actually, each semester, each one of those groups is responsible for five different gigs. So now we're looking at like 60 performances a year. Um, and the students have, uh, we have student managers, so like our music biz students manage the groups. And so they get all this really valuable experience rather than just playing um, in it hour, you know, hours and hours in marching band. That's really in the case at our school. If you came here for marching band, you made a bad choice. You know, you should have picked a, a school that that's what they focused on. So it was just kind of brutal. And we kind of found that we were constantly beholden to um, our athletics department. And so, yeah, we had a supportive administration that sort of liberated us from um, that situation. And as Caleb, you mentioned, um, yeah, we still will offer our um, ensembles to perform for halftime. Our first year we did that. So like I had the steel band play for halftime then I had our, the, uh, Samba band play and the drumline play. Um, we even had our mariachi ensemble play. So, uh, we will still offer that for halftime entertainment and that's up to athletics if they want to basically book us and, and make it happen. So yeah, that was, yeah, it was my colleague, Angela winter when she came, um, she just was like, this isn't working and we're trying to, the school's trying to be something it isn't. And so why not try to do something that's um, unique and, and more uh, educationally sound and, and honestly, financially sound as well. Yeah. Wow. Very cool. It makes perfect sense. It seems like marching band only uh, appeals to everyone if it's like really working, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it has to be big. It has to be good. And when it's like 40 kids, it's like, uh, it's just rough. It's rough for everyone. It's not, it's not a good experience for anyone. So, Yeah. I feel like Adam sees this little like gym that's not as well known because you do like really cool rep and this chamber music program's happening. And it's just like so many cool things are happening in this like little space in like South Colorado. Yeah, it's we're pretty isolated. Um, and since we're small, I think it's easy to to kind of think creatively and it's easy to get everyone on board. You know, you're not in a faculty meeting of 30 people arguing over things. It's it becomes pretty easy to to. I guess kind of like a smaller ship or whatever, you can be more maneuverable and kind of change, change course a lot quicker. So, um, and I, I think it goes back to that sort of that thing is, um, try not to be, try not to be North Texas or try and try not to be, you know, a massive uh, program or even just a medium sized program when you're not, you're just a small, smaller program. So figure out what you can do well. And that's what we've been trying to do. And, um, right now it's, we've, the past few years in particular have had some really, really cool faculty and that all sort of sees things similarly. So that's yeah, been good. like good on, yes. good on Angela too. Like that's a gutsy move to just like pivot like that. And if it didn't work, you know, if it crashed and burned, she could have maybe been out of a job, but obviously it did and it was yeah, highly successful. So good for her. Yeah, for sure. You know, and, and 
I felt like just her personality type as well. She's like the type of person that can sell that, you know, she, and she has this ability to bring, she's from Memphis. So she has this ability to bring like this Memphis side when she needs to. And then this like academic side when she needs to. And then, uh, yeah, she's just able to, to really kind of convince people, um, students and, and uh, administration alike, you know, what's, what's best for them. So yeah, she's awesome. Great. James, is there anything that uh, you have coming up you want to tell us about quick or anything we could plug for you on the show? Well, you know, this music festival that I, I play in every year, it's it almost burned. Like there, there's always forest fires this time of year. And so like the Durango areas had a really, really massive fire. Just found out last week that we're back on. So the festival's going to happen. And it's yeah. a it's a great, great little orchestra. It's a lot of uh, Dallas Symphony players. That's how it started. I think we're in like our 30th season over there. Um, so that's my next thing that's coming up. And that's pretty that pretty much takes me into August and, and for the start of the semester. Um, I think that's about it. I have a, a recording I done with, uh, with my partner, uh, Tracy, who's flutist and, uh, a friend of ours, who's a clarinetist and she's Japanese and, and teaches at Gunma university in Japan. So we have that CD I'm hoping comes out soon. I know we're going over there in December, January to do some more concerts and hopefully sell that. So, um, kind of a weird little chamber group, uh, but it's been a lot of fun. So I think those are sort of my main projects that I have coming up. You say she is flute? Yeah, yeah. So Tracy's a flutist. Yeah, flute and percussion is the duo. And then um, we have a trio with the clarinetist as well. I wrote a piece for piccolo and xylophone. It's really annoying. I think it's super <laughs> cool. I like that piece. Oh, thanks, It's a cool ben. piece. I, like it I haven't played it, but it's a cool piece for sure. It's, oh, it's on the to-do list for sure. Cool, cool. Well, that is really nice of you. You guys, thanks so much. Megan, it's good to have you back, buddy. Great to be back. I miss you all. Cool. No, it's been fun. Caleb, thanks for co-hosting again. Do a great job. Great topic. Yeah. Yeah. Ben, thanks so much. And James Doyle, man, great to finally get some, yeah, nice, nice long chat with you. Hey, it's a real pleasure. And I really appreciate what you all do. Uh, I listen to the podcast when I'm running my dogs every day. So uh, thanks for what you're doing. Keep it up if you can. I can't imagine how much time you put into it, but thanks, y'all. Thanks, everybody. We'll catch you next time. Go Cards! Yeah, they won today. They did? Yay! Oh, and also it's the season finale of Westworld tonight, so I know I know you guys are all thinking about that. Wayne's World? <laughs> <laughs> all right, bye. <laughs>